Welcome to this special edition of The Partial Historians. Dr. G and I sat down to talk about early Rome with a true expert of the period, Emeritus Professor of Ancient History at University of Manchester, Tim Cornell. Professor Cornell has held many prestigious academic posts in his long career, working at Christ College Cambridge, the British School at Rome, University College London, and the Institute of Classical Studies, to name just a few. He is widely published, but his most famous work for us will always be The Beginnings of Rome, a history of Italy and Rome from the Bronze Age to the Punic Wars. We hope that you enjoy the portrait that he was able to present of Rome in this early period. Welcome to a special episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We are here with perhaps one of the most eminent guests we've ever had on the show. And that is Tim Cornell, who keen listeners will know we have referenced on numerous occasions in our podcast because his work has been so important to our recent episodes on early Rome. At the moment... Tim Cornell is president of the Society for the Promotion of Roman Studies, and he has also been working on some volumes about the fragments of the Roman historians, which are very exciting, and we hope that we get to mention them at some point. But he has held numerous academic positions throughout his career and authored many works. So welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. So let's kick things off maybe with some mythbusters about early Rome. What do you think are the three top popular misconceptions that people have about early Rome? Goodness. Well, I think about the foundation of the city, I think a popular misconception is that uh, the, the city of Rome was founded in the 8th century BC, um, the traditional date, 753. That, I think, cannot be right. Um, because the evidence, the archaeological evidence that's now available shows that the city of Rome was much older than that. Uh, so paradoxically, um, the Roman uh, myth makers and, and historians got it, you know, dated their city far too late. The archaeological evidence definitely shows that the site was inhabited as early as the Bronze Age, that is well before 1000 BC, and there's continuous habitation in the city centre, insofar as excavations have allowed, they've shown that there's continuous habitation from then uh, right through until uh, historical times. So um, the city of Rome has been inhabited since before 1000 BC, continuously up to the present day, which is quite interesting and I think is a, a paradoxical conclusion. It's not that um, uh, the city of Rome is much later than we thought, but on the contrary, much earlier. Uh, recently, it's been claimed by uh, some archaeologists, and it's been publicised in the press, that evidence was found that something happened about the middle of the 8th century, um, namely uh, that a wall was built around the Palatine uh, and that certain other uh, developments uh, that show a major transformation of the site around about that time. And some people have been inclined to associate that with Romulus. So although the city's been inhabited for a long time, Perhaps at that date, it was transformed into a proper city-state, as it were, having just previously been a collection of villages and huts and so on. Um, this is very controversial, actually. And uh, the idea that Romulus has been proved to be a historical character, um, OK, <clears throat> not necessarily uh, an individual who was uh, rescued by a wolf as an infant and so on <laughs> and <laughs> killed his brother. Um, that is all clearly mythical and part of uh, folktale, but that somebody or some group of people at that time decided to form a formal city-state and in a sense founded it, and to that extent the legends might have some basis in fact. But I think this is very controversial, particularly because this, the inhabited area seems to have extended way beyond the Palatine, so what on earth somebody was doing just building a wall of um, still very uncertain character around this central part of the city at that date and does not seem to me to prove that uh, that anyone is transforming it in any way and actually the real transformation if there is one came a bit later um, probably in the middle of the seventh century about 650 when uh, there is clear evidence from then on of a real urban 
centre with stone buildings, streets, open spaces, temples, that sort of thing. From that date, and particularly in the 6th century, that's the 500s, we can say without question that Rome was a functioning city-state uh, with urban features, and in fact was one of the most important uh, city-states in Italy. But that uh, would suggest that in, in in spite of what I've said, that actually the date of 750 for the foundation is too early, uh, and that actually things began to happen really formally a hundred years later. Either way, it's bad news from Romulus and Remus. <laughs> and uh, one thing to say about Romulus and Remus, that the myth, if you, look, if you examine the myth, it is quite clear that what Romulus was supposed to have done was to found a new city on a completely uninhabited site. First of all, he and his brother were abandoned as infants in the river, and they were rescued by a wolf. Now, wolves don't live in inhabited areas. <laughs> you know, so to that extent, the wolf, which had its lair on the Palatine, the Palatine was obviously a deserted area in the middle of a forest or whatever. That's the first thing. And then uh, Romulus and Remus have a, an argument, famously, uh, not only about which one should have the job of founding the city, but where the city was to be. Romulus chose the Palatine and Remus supposedly the Aventine, or at least on a different site. Now, that could not have happened if the place already existed. Okay. Um, thirdly, uh, when, when they founded the city, they didn't really, they had a few uh, followers, a gang of pretty rough types, apparently, uh, shepherds and so on. And they um, didn't have enough people to form a proper city. So Romulus established what he called an asylum on the capital and invited anyone who wanted to come and join him, uh, including outcasts and runaway slaves and criminals and so on. And thousands of people did come and join him at this asylum. Now, that uh, is a very interesting aspect of the tradition, because this group of uh, people that were not recognized and uh, were generally despised by the surrounding societies were a gang of unattached males who had no uh, girlfriends or anything. And so um, in order to ensure the survival of the community, they needed wives. And so uh, Romulus organized notorious rape of the Sabine women. Okay, That story um, has presupposes that the original inhabitants of Rome were unattached males that no woman would want to go anywhere near. And Therefore, they organized the rape and so on, and, and the, the story developed from there. Now, it's a very interesting story, which does not reflect well on Romulus or the Romans, does it? Let's face it. But it, it absolutely presupposes the idea that nothing existed before. And no city, no site, and no Romans, okay, until Romulus developed this idea. So the archaeological evidence which shows inhabitants uh, resident uh, a community going right back to the Bronze Age is frankly uh, disproves the traditional story, if I can put it like that. Well, I'm pretty happy to hear that a mass rape probably didn't take place. So yeah, I mean, that's I think, a win, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, I think um, possibly you can deduce that from archaeological evidence. Who would ever have thought that <laughs> archaeological evidence to disprove something like that? Absolutely. Yeah. But this does, I think, lead into this idea of why would the the Romans come up with a story like this? It doesn't reflect well on them, you would think. At, yeah. at whatever point this story is generated, it's it's not a positive characterization of the Roman people. And what no, we're... that's absolutely right. The whole story is very discreditable, really. First of all, there's a fratricide. I mean, the story begins with murder. Romulus kills his brother. And all other aspects of the story, they're rescued by a wolf and the wolf becomes the sort of totem of, of Rome. Well, wolves are not the, the friends of civilization, let's face it. And um, it, it, it was used by Rome's enemies um, in historical times as a sign that the Romans were a predatory, uh, brutal uh, people because, uh, you know, um, the people who were conquered by the Romans said they behaved like wolves. So the whole story and then the rape and everything else uh, is very discreditable. Why should somebody come up with it? Well, I don't believe 
um, contrary to my friend Peter Wiseman, who's written so interestingly about this, that anybody sat down one day and thought, let's invent a story. Uh, it doesn't work like that. These are folk tales which are handed down from generations and any other folk tale like um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or any Grimm's fairy tale. It's something in oral tradition that's been handed down and can be paralleled by other stories of the same type in other civilizations, in fact. And it's a folk tale. And folk tales do contain these dreadful elements, don't they? Mm, I mean, definitely. Snow White, you know, she's uh, somebody's told to take her out and kill her because she's the most beautiful girl and and um, she has to be rescued. Well, that's a very similar thing. And it's not a, a nice story. And a lot of the grim fairy tales are grim. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cinder- Cinderella sawing the, the toes off to fit them into the shoes, the ugly stepsisters in Cinderella. Exactly. Yeah. When you think about it, the story of, of Moses and uh, in the basket or whatever, these stories of children who are exposed or that, that people want to kill them um, because they're a threat in some way are very prevalent in, in the world's sort of folktale index. And uh, and then uh, who, who wants to kill the child? Well, a wicked uncle usually, or somebody like <laughs> that who's, who's usurped the kingship and sees the infant as a threat, okay, and therefore orders him her to be killed. Well, that's, um, that's, that's a folktale element again, you know. Well, I suppose it's, it's, it's always those sorts of stories where, I think humans gravitate naturally towards those sorts of tales where these people who society imagined nothing of end up becoming, you know, super eminent in that society. I mean, you think about Captain America, he's the scrawniest guy. He wants to do good, but he just doesn't have the strength. Let's put him in a machine and he'll become the most magnificent superhero the world has ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And and these uh, superheroes very often don't have any family, do they? They're often orphans. Um, or whatever and abandoned on on the earth or whatever by, by aliens or something but th- that's that's the same of, uh, of people who go on to become the founders of dynasties or of religions for instance i mean jesus let's face it uh, you know, the, the threat from herod to kill all the children because this um, newborn he's been told in a dream will uh, one day replace him I mean, that, that's absolutely standard, isn't it? And, and, and it explains the rise of people who come from nowhere. Absolutely. I think this leads in really nicely as well, these ideas to thinking about Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus, yep. because they, te- they end up being quite major sources, written sources for this early yep. period. But yep. both of them are written much later in the piece, even if we were to say, there's something happening in the Bronze Age and there's there's some walls being built in about sort of the 800s and then there's maybe a rise of of people in a systematic way from about 650. They're writing a history of Rome from the first century, so this 100 BC down to to zero. And what would they be using for their source material? Because they reproduce a lot of these folk tales. Yes, they do. And... uh... I mean, another source you haven't mentioned that's uh, even later is Plutarch. Mm. Plutarch has, uh, you know, a biography, a life of Romulus, which is actually one of the most interesting accounts of, of the story. But uh, uh, Livy, Dionysius, Halicarnassus writing under Augustus and Plutarch writing under, under Domitian Trajan have this story about how Rome began. And um, it's, it's clearly it has all the character of an oral folk tale. Mm. and has been handed down and handed down. And we do know that they used earlier written sources, uh, these historians. They used earlier historians whose works don't survive, except in fragments, which brings me to the fragments of the Roman historian. The earlier Roman historians whom Livy and Dionysius and Plutarch used as their sources, they go back to at least 200 BC. Um, The first Roman historian man called Fabius Pictor writing at the time of Hannibal, the Second Punic War, uh, possibly as a result of the Second Punic War, was moved to write a history of his city for the first time, and was followed then by lots of subsequent historians who basically drew on the same material, and they used each other. Livy, in particular, seems not to have done any what we would call research. He simply used the standard available histories and 
wrote his own account uh, and his aim was not to find new facts or to give a completely new uh, reorganization of traditional facts um, as a modern historian would uh, but rather to produce the best version a, a really well written story uh, which would be exciting and would allow the readers to imagine that they were there you know uh, Livy is actually um, a super historian in that sense you you can read Livy and uh, there are bits of Livy for, for instance his account of the Hannibalic war where it's almost difficult to read it without a lump in your throat you know he really does move you and you feel how awful this war was and how the Romans were really on their knees and then they came back and, and eventually won and there must be for Livy an explanation which is that the Roman people had this sort of strength of inner character that any other people would have been absolutely overwhelmed but they came back and they won. Now that um, was his method and uh, so when writing about Romulus and so on he gives a, a really um, moving and interesting vivid account of, of the events as, as he saw them even though Livy quite clearly didn't believe what he was saying I mean he did not <laughs> think it was historical any more than you and I do. Um, he makes this clear from his method of saying it is said or the story goes and he says this repeatedly in the very when dealing with the very early period and it's only when he gets to the later kings for instance uh, that he starts to write about it as things that he believed really happened see what he means so he was well aware of the legendary nature I'm not sure that Dionysius was Dionysius <laughs> has a much more, I mean, his account is far longer than Lily's, and he goes into endless detail and used, he did do research. He looked for earlier sources, Greek historians, and um, gave a very, very uh, interesting account, but one which is is sort of flat. Um, if, if you know, um, you, you read it and you just think, well, this is a boring recitation of things that he's read. <laughs> and it, it doesn't, in the way that Livy does, um, make you sit up and think, my God, it must oh, have been goodness. awful to be there or something. You know? <laughs> You've just explained our relationship for, for the whole of the podcast for all of this time, because I've been lumped with reading Dionysius of Halicarnassus. She's oh, reading Livy. And she's yeah. having a great time. And I was like, this is just another long rhetorical yeah. speech where he's showing off and not getting to the yes. point. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, Dionysius doesn't seem to have any, whereas Livy does make it clear, I think, that uh, it's legendary when he's dealing with these early events and then gradually it becomes more real and, and he reflects that. Now, Dionysius is utterly flat because there's no difference in his account of the events under Romulus or Numa and um, the events of the fourth century, you know, when Rome was fighting um, wars in Italy, which are perfectly historical, uh, it all reads exactly the same. Whereas Livy is well aware that for the earliest period, there's little that you could rely on. And, uh, and his scale actually reflects that. He, he's only got a few chapters on Romulus. And then, now, Dionysus has got two books you know, <laughs> with the events of Romulus's time. And Livy is a better historian because he really understands that things become more historical as they come closer in time, that evidence is both more abundant and of better quality the nearer you get to your own time. I have no words to describe how grateful I am for those sound grabs that you've just given me when we get into a fight about who's the better historian. <laughs> and I'd, I... I'd like to put in a word for old Plutarch again. Plutarch mm. mixes these two, I think. I mean, he's got research, he's unearthed all sorts of sources that we don't find anywhere else. And so in that sense, he's like Dionysius, but Plutarch has a really interesting understanding of human psychology. And Plutarch's lives are, they read like lives of real people. The life of Romulus, interestingly, and Theseus, which is the Greek parallel, you know, the founder of Athens, Theseus and Romulus are clearly ciphers. They're not real people. They're obviously mythical. And you get that in Plutarch. Compare Plutarch's account of the life of Romulus with his account of the life of Marius or Sulla or somebody. And you can see the one case he's dealing with a real person, the other case he's dealing with a myth. So he, I, I think, also has a historical sense that is, I'm afraid, lacking in our friend Dionysius. 
<laughs> well, fair enough. But I have to say, I think there isn't a Roman historian that I've met who doesn't lament the fact that we don't have Fabius Pictor, um, because he seems to be like a, a sort of a linchpin written source um, that many writers that we have got are going back to, and we don't have the opportunity to read him in an extensive way ourselves. And so there's sort of this sense of mystery of like, what was this sort of Roman historian like? And uh, there's a there's an unfulfilled desire there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and uh, he's quoted uh, in the case of Romulus, both Dionysius and Plutarch quote Fabius Pictor and have um, not a direct quotation, but a paraphrase of Fabius's account quite extensive of the whole story of Romulus and Remus, and it is the standard story, okay? And this was all in Fabius Pictor, and the fact that Dionysius and Plutarch give more or less exactly the same information reflect the fact that they are genuinely using Fabius Pictor. Um, and it, it's, it's uh, clear that he was the first to put all this stuff down, and that it was followed by all subsequent historians. So who might well have introduced new material or variant traditions and so on. But essentially, the basic story of Roman history down to 200 BC was um, written up by Fabius Pictor for the first time. So you're going to ask me, I expect, where did he get his information? I was going to say, <laughs> even he was writing a long time after all this stuff happened. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's still a mystery, of course. We don't know where he got his information from, but... Um, you can tell with this story of Romulus that, of course, this is oral tradition, that these stories of Romulus were told to every young, certainly aristocratic Roman on their mother's knee uh, as children, that they would all have, have known these stories. And when Fabius Pictor produced his edition, I think his readers weren't astonished. They were just sort of nodding along and saying, yes, that's what we were taught. Um, that sort of oral tradition of the early myths is it makes makes good sense when you get further towards historical events what did Fabius Pictor use then we're into a real problem there were documents available certainly official documents like the list of consuls for instance the fasti um which provide a framework don't they for Livy and Dionysius every year is given um, the name of the consuls and, uh, and then the events, and it's done year by year like that. So the basic framework was provided by this list. Now, the Romans used to date events by the year of the consuls. They did not have a numbering system, which um, is difficult to imagine uh, how <laughs> that could have worked. But everything, they would say, this happened in the consulship of X and Y, okay? And even a bottle of wine would have you know, the consulship of so-and-so on it. It was a very <laughs> <Okay>. good year. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and Horace and poets, uh, you know, make jokes about wines of, of, you know, the consulship of Opimius and that sort of thing. You know, that was a very, very good year. Okay. Now, the only way you can make historical sense of something like that is to have a list, isn't it? So that if all you've got is the holders of the consulship, um, just the names, the only way you can know how long ago it was is to have a list and say, oh, it was there. You see what I mean? So lists of consuls um, must have must have existed. Otherwise, they, you know, a society couldn't function without a, a way of deciding when the consulship of X and Y actually was. So lists go back. Um, and the ones that we read now, we can compile them from Livy, for instance, one of the main sources. Um, but also the inscribed list on the um, Capitoline Fasti, uh, which were originally engraved on the Arch of Augustus. Um, that um, these things were the product of historical research uh, where people were able to consult earlier lists. Now, <clears throat> for a system like that to function, every household probably had a consul list on the wall so that they could discuss things in dinner and say, when was that? Oh, well, that was 50 years ago because you know, <laughs> I, I think that must be so. And therefore the list of consuls, as we call it, we're not referring to a, an official list in the city of Rome that everybody could go and look at, but everyone had their own list because as new consuls came along, you just added their names and that's how it works. Um, it's just as if you want to know who won the football cup, you know, in the FA cup in 1956, 
Well, that can easily be found out. You go to the internet or whatever, or you might happen to know because it was Manchester City. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Not but, biased but, at all there. But that list, you know, going back to 1870, 1872, isn't it, I think, is known. And you don't say, where is the list? You know, it's, a, it's engraved on the cup that everyone knows you can find it you can find a book with the list in it or whatever and everyone has one in their house if you're interested so that's the list of consuls which is a sort of theoretical list of the people who held the consulship that anyone can go and find a copy of if, if they're so inclined and the versions of it that we have are very consistent and clearly um, this list was widely available and everybody knew so that's a really good start because once you've got the names of the consuls and these were people who uh, were heads of state. They presided over political events and they led the armies in war. And so if you want to know when a certain battle was, we know who the, you know, the tradition maintains that uh, such and such a consul, Manlius Torquatus, for instance, won the Battle of, of Centinum. So um, when was that? Well, you look at your list and there he is. So that is a, a very strong basis. And Fabius obviously used that. and. Almost certainly, um, I've argued this anyway in the edition of the fragments, Fabius organised his account year by year uh, on the basis of the consul list and formed a model for Livy. Okay, that's fine. And then there were other documents and possibly some kind of official record. This is, um, again, controversial. Uh, mm. The chief priest, the Pontifex Maximus, had a, 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 um, a record that he used to compile every year he would put a, a white board, an album, on the outside of his house and record events and tell the people when something was going to happen. Or um, sometimes uh, we're told that he included evidence of eclipses of the sun, for instance. This was a, a, an event of religious importance and would therefore be recorded. That sort of thing. It started with the consul's names at the top and the, possibly the other magistrates. And went back some way into the past. Um, we really don't know how far back, but there's an eclipse of the sun recorded, uh, Cicero mentions this in the um, records of the pontifices from about 400 BC. Now, you know, that's interesting. So it would imply that the records went back at least as far as that. And Cicero says it goes back to the beginning of Roman history. So there are official records like that. And then the aristocratic families, the great clans like the Fabii and the Cornelii and so on would record memories of their own ancestors that reflected glory on the family. So much of Fabius Pictor's account would have the Fabii no doubt at the center of the picture. Okay, um, While the Punic War was going on at the time, Fabius Maximus was the leading general and uh, in many ways saved the Romans. That would have been written up, no doubt, in Fabius. He was his cousin. And uh, earlier Fabii, likewise, uh, were responsible um, in some ways negatively for some of the most famous events, like, for instance, the sack of the city by the Gauls. It all started, according to Livy, when um, three ambassadors, three Fabian brothers, uh, went off to Clusium. And um, while they were there, which is an Etruscan city, um, this Gallic band came down and attacked Clusium and these three brothers joined in the defense of the city and the Gauls were so cross at this breach of international law that they then turned on Rome so it was the fault of these three Fabii that Rome suffered the um, the disaster of uh, 390 BC or thereabouts well who knows but Fabius Pictor must have recorded this and it must go back to him. I think there's no doubt about that. In other words, he was quite frank about uh, both the negative and the positive aspects of the Fabian family history. But all the great families had this. And um, we're told that uh, the Roman, when a great Roman died, um, they had a public funeral. And uh, Polybius describes this, and it is remarkable. The dead man would be impersonated by one of his surviving relatives. And they all wore these death masks. It's, it's a grim thought that not <laughs> only the dead man, but all his famous ancestors who'd held offices in the state, consulship, etc., would be impersonated by living members of the family. And so they were all present. The whole family was there. It's an extraordinary idea. 
and uh, they would uh, somebody would recount a eulogy of the dead man and of the whole family and all of their achievements going back. Well, you could see how this could be for somebody like Fabius Pictor, an obvious source to go through for historical information. Um, it was also <laughs> apparently, and not surprisingly, full of uh, fictitious and um, false claims. <laughs> so, um, we are, uh, Livy himself mentions that. But you do have but to still, make your family you know, look good at some point. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, uh, if, if you read Livy, the whole uh, story actually is an account of famous families playing their part year by year, isn't it? That's how it works. You know, that the, these family archives and histories that were paraded at every funeral, goodness me, would have made the Roman public know something about their past and would be an obvious source of information for historians. Let's put it that way. There certainly have been a lot of Fabii in our account so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this kind of segues nicely into our next question. So talking, we've been talking a lot about these written sources and also oral sources, but yep. surely for people who study Rome these days in particular, archaeological evidence is also an important way of yep. checking what we get in the written account. So what can you tell us about the archaeological evidence for early Rome, especially considering that Rome is still an occupied site and therefore we presumably can't access everything without disrupting a whole lot of people. Well, that's right. And it's not only that, but if, for instance, some building work requires uh, excavation because any site that becomes available in Rome, um, the archaeologists have to move in first. But, uh, you know, to get to the, uh, the earliest site, um, the Republican material and, and even the archaic material, you've got centuries of medieval and then Roman imperial buildings and things. And nobody wants to destroy them. I mean, archaeology is the only science, as far as I know, that destroys its own evidence. <laughs> um, but archaeology, you know, in order to get to let's say what was happening in 500 BC, you might well have to destroy a lots of imperial material, medieval material things, which for obvious reasons, people are reluctant to do and does make it extremely difficult actually. Mm. And very often the evidence we have for early Rome consists of what they call soundings. They put down probes, of, you know, let's say 10 centimeters wide, you know, like that and go right down into the core. Uh, and then see what they get. Well, you know, you might get a core like that, which will have pottery and evidence of human habitation. But we're fortunate in one way that uh, large parts of the centre of Rome are now archaeological parks. I mean, if you've been there, you'll know the Forum is still um, as it was in, well, late Roman times, let's put it that way. The Palatine, the site of the emperor's palaces. Okay, so it's just a mass of uh, very bricky sort of ruins, Circus Maximus, um, and and other parts of Rome are still archaeological parks, and therefore make, makes it possible to uh, excavate. Part of the reason for that is that the city centre moved, didn't it, in the Middle Ages from the Forum Capitoline area, moved north to what in ancient Roman times was the Campus Martius, Campus Martius which is now the Centro Storico, the medieval centre of, of Rome. And that is a very fortunate thing because it meant that the ancient Roman, you know, the Forum itself and other, and the Palatine and the Colosseum and things were left. And during the Middle Ages and early modern times, these were just enormous ruins that really frightened people for various reasons. For one thing, <laughs> All the local criminals used to go and have it there, you know, so you couldn't go and visit them without an armed escort. You know, that was still true even in 1800. And they could use them as a convenient stone quarry, for instance, which they did. Uh, but otherwise, these ruins remained, which is why actually quite a lot of the ruins of ancient Rome are just brick structures, because they would all have been faced with marble. Mm. Um, but in the Middle Ages, um, when they wanted some... Um, convenient building stone, you know, rather than go and quarry new stuff, just help yourself from the Colosseum. Um, until one of the popes, I forget which one it was, you know, in the 16th century said, look, this must stop and prevented people from looting the buildings anymore. But, but you know, <laughs> the difficulty then is how do you know what lay under the forum? The forum that we are seeing now is the imperial forum. And again, they did soundings um, 
when scientific archaeology first began and that really goes hand in hand with the development of Rome as a capital of a modern state so from the 1870s onwards and particularly around about the turn of the 19th 20th century about 1900 systematic excavations for the first time were carried out in the forum the palatine and areas like that and um that's really when proper archaeology began and we've got 120 years let's say of archaeological record um, and it's still going on and every time you know there's an opportunity to dig in the forum or wherever some restoration work for instance they will take the opportunity to go down as far as they can what's it telling us well uh, as I, I i've mentioned that the city of rome goes back to uh, the bronze age without a doubt thus disproving the story of romulus and marinus i really do have to emphasize that. <laughs> you um, really have it in for those guys <laughs> well i do i'm afraid <laughs> i've also got it in for the guys who think that it's true you know I, I, i'm afraid i don't think that is that's a romantic notion that i really don't think we can count on this but anyway archaeology can only answer certain types of questions what historians reproduce is a history of events involving real people now archaeology can't either verify or disprove that easily um, unless for instance you're lucky enough to find an inscription with somebody's name on it which does happen um, and a few years ago um, about 30 years ago now but seems like yesterday to me um, <laughs> they found an inscription at uh, Satricum which is a town just about 20 miles south of Rome which recorded the name of a powerful individual called Poplios Valesios Okay. Um, but in uh, classical Latin, that would read Publius Valerius. And the inscription reads, the companions of Publius Valerius set up this monument to uh, a god or somebody who's not clear, actually. Um, um, the inscription isn't complete, but basically, I'm sorry, the god that they set it up to was, was Mars. They, we know that, but there's a, a word at the beginning of the inscription that we don't know. So they set up to Mars, the war god. Um, this inscription, the companions of Publius Valerius. Okay, now there is a Publius Valerius um, who uh, lived at, at the same time. This inscription can be dated archaeologically to very precisely around about 500 BC. One of the leaders who overthrew the kings, uh, established the Roman Republic, and still held the record for the number of consulships um, until Julius Caesar. Um, Marius uh, in the late Republic was Publius Valerius Publicola, okay, whose biography we can read in Plutarch and so on. We know him well. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks as if, well, you know, I mean, archaeology has proved the existence of this person whom many historians are being inclined to sort of dismiss as a myth. But what he's doing in Satricum with a group of companions dedicating something to Mars uh, is not at all clear. It does raise and, more questions. Um, yeah, it, it, but it's it's very significant, that, isn't it? Um, but that's an exception. Normally, archaeology produces evidence of graves, particularly tombs and, and buildings and things like that, and can provide evidence of the state of the economy and society at a certain point. It definitely shows that Rome, as I've already said, was a functioning city-state of some significance in the sixth century but and and, and the historians do um, reflect that in an interesting way um, Rome under the last kings and the very early republic was a very powerful state in central Italy and had conquered a kind of mini empire according to Livy uh, under <laughs> the last Tarquin for instance the last king historians have been inclined to dismiss that but now I think it's quite evident that Rome really was an exceptional a powerful state at that date and this evidence that it dominated the whole of central Italy in 500 BC I think we can treat as 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 factual in in, in that sense the real problem is trying to verify um, the life of Romulus by archaeological evidence simply can't be done because it's not in the nature of of the material and and people are asking the wrong questions essentially there Yes, I think the less uh, we say about things like the Lupercal, maybe the better at this point. Yes, yes, let's not mention the Lupercal. <laughs> <laughs> but this does lead to, um, I'm interested in your thoughts on how we might reconcile what we get from the archaeological record with what does come through in that literary evidence. And you've noted already with that inscription, 
of Publicola, we've got like a moment where we can sort of see how they might connect with each other. Are there any other moments like that in your opinion when it comes to early Rome? Uh, sometimes the, um, uh, the historians talk about physical buildings, namely uh, temples and famous monuments that are still there and um, that were part of the story, particularly uh, I would mention the Capitoline Temple, the great temple of Jupiter which existed on the Capitoline and was apparently built by the last king, Tarquin, but he was expelled in a revolution and the first consuls of the Republic actually dedicated the new building. Now this building is described by Dionysius of Halicarnassus uh, and as being of enormous size. I mean, um, I think by 50 meters by 40 meters or something absolutely huge. And this thing has, uh, because they talk about it and it's part of the, the story, it can be identified because the Temple of Jupiter lasted right through Roman history and is there on the Capitoline um, beneath the modern Palazzo Caffarelli, which is a Renaissance building. And the uh, foundations and substructures of this ancient building um, do indeed date from around 500 BC and they confirm the uh, what Dionysius tells us about the enormous size of this building. If that evidence is being correctly interpreted, and there is some controversy about this, but the majority opinion is that it does, uh, this was the largest temple, uh, not only in Italy, but in the whole Mediterranean world at that time, 500 BC. It was the biggest. And of course, the historical sources talk about it endlessly. It was a major thing, which no doubt the king was building for his own prestige, uh, apart from anything else, but demonstrated to the historians and people who came later that, that Rome really was the Caput Mundi, the capital of the world, you know, it had the major temple and so on, and Jupiter had promised greatness to the Romans, as we read in Virgil. Well, you know, there you are, a, a case where the historical sources and the archaeological evidence are dealing with the same thing, the Temple of Jupiter. And, um, it has to be said that uh, the archaeological evidence bears out the historical tradition in this respect. I mean, that's a, a significant finding. Absolutely. And, I, and sometimes I think in your work as well, you've talked about the kind of absence of those pieces of evidence. So yeah. the lack of temple building that's going on, for example, right. when Rome yeah. is, seems to be going through pretty difficult times. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That it, particularly in the fifth century, from about 480, the last of a great burst of temple building, which is recorded in the historical sources, and then nothing um, really until certainly after 390. And then in the fourth century, it builds up again in the later fourth century when the historians tell us that Rome was conquering Italy and, and uh, everything was going brilliantly. Then suddenly there are new temples built and so on. And the archeological evidence absolutely reflects that. A lot of archaic temples from the late monarchy, very early Republic, both uh, mentioned in the historical sources and have been discovered. Uh, you know, the Temple of uh, Castor, for instance, in the Forum, um, definitely proved to have been built around 480 or a bit earlier, maybe. And, uh, and then nothing. Uh, and then this gap is reflected both in the archaeological evidence and in the historical record, which you know, must give you a prima facie case for saying the historical record is um, in some sense, reliable. Absolutely. So we've been focusing very much on the early Republic, I don't know, for the last three or four years. It feels like we'll never leave. <laughs> and one of the things we're always trying to figure out is exactly how we should describe the early government of Rome, because using these later sources, sometimes it seems like they're maybe projecting what was happening in their own time back into that early time. So we're curious to hear how you would describe the government of the early Republic. Yeah, I think I think um, this is an area where uh, we really are in the dark, actually. I think um, that the, the famous development of consuls, senate, uh, the advisory body, you know, of ex-consuls, and then the popular assemblies that that elect the consuls and make major decisions. This sort of tripartite structure that was always praised later by Cicero and before him by Polybius as a kind of mixed constitution that uh, had the best of all worlds, monarchy, aristocracy and democracy mixed together. And 
And there is uh, some truth in that, undoubtedly, uh, um, the Rome of, let's say, 300 BC. But can you push that back 200 years? And it's not clear that you can. Uh, for instance, the Senate, there's no real evidence that the Senate existed as a body of 300 ex-magistrates um, as early as uh, the 5th century. I'm afraid I've argued myself that actually the Senate that we know really didn't exist before about uh, 320, that it's a development of that period when the Romans were conquering Italy and so on, and the state was being absolutely transformed. The consuls, supposedly two consuls per year, going right back to 509, according to the Fasti. Actually, it's more complicated than that, because for a period of the late 5th and early 4th century, they had a different regime uh, where instead of two consuls, they had military tribunes with consular power. OK, um, more than two of them each year, sometimes three, sometimes four, sometimes up to as many as six a year. And by the 390s, uh, for instance, the year when Rome was supposedly sacked by the Gauls, there were six heads of state, six elected military tribunes, not two consuls. Although there were some years, 392 is one uh, in, in the traditional chronology, uh, when there were two consuls elected uh, instead of military tribunes. So these, these two systems alternated. Now, we do not understand why this is. Um, sometimes suggested that there was, there was uh, warfare going on that required more than two commanders, for instance, and therefore they had sort of three, four, five or six. But... Um, there's no correlation, actually, in the record between uh, the level of warfare and the number of magistrates. So um, that doesn't work. And in any case, the Romans had another system, um, supposedly only in emergencies, but maybe at other times as well, they would appoint a dictator who would have supreme command. Now, you know, again, there's no very obvious correlation, even between dictators and extreme warfare. So... Um, I can raise questions and say, what exactly is going on? We don't know. And it was only in um, 367, according to the um, traditional date, um, that uh, the Romans introduced a system where um, the plebeians were admitted to the consulship and the consulship was established as two per year from 366 onwards. And 366 was the year when the first plebeian held the consulship. We know that from Fabius Pictor. So some people argue, and with some justification, that the consulship itself, the dual magistracy that headed the Roman state, really didn't exist until 366. Before that, you have this mixed system with military tribunes and things. Before that, you have the decemvirate, uh, the, the 10 men who drew up the 12 tables. That's a special event in the 450s. And before that, there were supposedly two consuls per year. And the FASTI, uh, the list of consuls reflect that. Uh, so that actually what happened in 366 was a restoration of the original system. But we don't know this. And what was happening between 509 and 450 is very obscure. And we're told by Livy and Dionysius that there were two consuls per year. But a lot of people doubt that and think there might be something wrong with the list. Oh, well, that would be interesting. I mean, that, that raises more questions as well, doesn't it? I'm going to think about that one. <laughs> but to get back, get back to your point where you're talking about the sort of like the military aspect of some of these things, we get a sense in Livy and Dionysius that there is really year on year some major set battles. And they, they portray these even in this really early period when we're talking like 5th and 4th century, where it's like, it seems almost as if they're describing it from an eyewitness perspective, like you're a reporter on the ground and it's like the two are going head to head and they'll describe really intricate tactics. And yet it feels like you might be watching a movie and certainly it seems very unlikely that they would have that kind of detail to rely upon. Do we have any idea about what archaic warfare might have been really like? Well, um, yeah, you've raised a very interesting and, and disturbing point that Livy and Dionysius do describe these battle details in a very elaborate and detailed form. And it's most unlikely that uh, any proper information of that kind actually survived. So what is actually happening is that the historians are writing set battle descriptions, you know, um, that a battle is fought. So it gives the historian the opportunity 
to create an imaginary battle, just just like the speeches that they supposedly delivered. I mean, they, they didn't have, uh, let's face it, tape recorders or indeed anybody, uh, any stenographer taking notes. These things were imagined by the historians and the historians more or less admit this, that at an appropriate point, the general gives a speech to his soldiers and stirs them up. And it's an opportunity for the historian to write his own stirring speech. Okay? Certainly for and, Dionysius. Certainly <laughs> for Dionysius, but also Livy, who writes a better speech than Dionysius does. Uh, Dionysius Damn is full of, <laughs> you know, rhetorical uh, sort of theory, but they fall flat. I mean, whereas Livy can write a speech which, you know, you think if you heard that, yeah, you might be inspired. <laughs> um, but anyway, they, they, it's quite clear that they're writing their own. And um, with battle descriptions, everybody knows how to write a battle account. It's part of the education of, of a Roman a young aristocrat, and they will one day take part in battles and they need to know what happens. So there are stock things uh, that happen in these battles. And sometimes Dionysius and Livy record the same battle in exactly the same terms, which is very interesting because it proves that neither of them uh, invented it. <laughs> uh, but it was invented by an earlier historian whom they're both following. As far as we know, Dionysius, who slightly later, did not use Livy. Um, that's, uh, I mean, another explanation would be Livy invented it and Dionysius copied it. But that does not seem to have happened, but it's still something that historians have been reluctant to approach this problem of why Dionysius didn't use Livy or did he or didn't he. But anyway, more probably, I think, it, it, it is that, that they're both following the same account of some historian uh, that was earlier. Stock battle descriptions, therefore, are unhistorical. And uh, OK, there might have been a record that some sort of battle took place. But whether it was really like that, uh, and what they've done, of course, is to reproduce the conditions of historical times, uh, like the Second Punic War, and then take the battle back. There are certain aspects that are quite interesting. For instance, single combats take place, don't they? Uh, that before the battle starts, some Goliath-type figure comes out from the enemy and said, anybody prepared to challenge me? And out comes some Roman David. <laughs> yeah. and, and, of course, inevitably wins the battle against all the odds. And the, these stories are all through Livy. You've read them. That's interesting because it might reflect more, uh, possibly even a real practice, but certainly a, a genuine sort of folktale tradition. The David and Goliath story in the Bible itself is clearly an example of the same thing, you know, how we beat them by all the odds, uh, personalised in that way. Whether battles of champions ever did happen, we don't know, but it's, it's not inconceivable. Otherwise, early warfare, well, you know, there's some evidence that a lot of it was pretty unregulated. And um, whether the state as such was sufficiently developed to have what is called by modern sociologists a monopoly of violence. That is to say, violence is outlawed, as in modern states, uh, except by the state itself, which has armed forces and police forces and so on that, that exercise force in the public interest. Um, that's called a monopoly of violence. Well, it does look as if um, early Rome might have been a little bit like the Wild West, where private warfare was going on and groups could form. And particularly the evidence, for instance, of our friend Publius Valerius, he's got armed companions and they're making a dedication to Mars, the war god. Well, maybe Publius Valerius was not so much a, a Roman magistrate as um, a warlord, you know, with his own followers. And that this kind of warlord armed group sort of um, warfare was going on, uh, there is some evidence of that. That's not the only instance. Um, Coriolanus, I mean, it's mm. a really good story about the guy who um, was rejected by the Roman people. They didn't realize how great a man he was and so on, and they were jealous of him. And so they elected other people to the consulship instead of him. And in a fit of pique, he went off and joined the enemy to the Volscians and became their leader and then led an attack against Rome. And um, a very famous story, and of course, it was only when his mother came out and said, you're a very naughty boy, that he actually <laughs> um, relented and took his forces back. Now, um, OK, in Dionysius particularly, uh, Coriolanus is represented as a man who was always surrounded by a, a following of people who devoted themselves 
to him. He had his own private army. And even when he was fighting for Rome, you know, uh, he helped win battles by getting his own followers to go in and, and do the necessary thing. And uh, when he went off to the Volscians, in fact, he's just a, a war leader who's changed his allegiance. Now that is, that's a very interesting story. And, you know, maybe a lot of early warfare was like that. Um, and uh, recent scholarship has tended to emphasize it a great deal. I think private war as against, you know, official state war with great pitched battles, rather than sort of raiding by armed groups or bandits or whatever you want to call them, but a private armed group, you know, and they're sort of mafia leaders. We do, we do get that feeling a lot when we're reading the sources about the the gangs that are going on, particularly when we're talking about what's happening within the city and even the Fabii and Cremera, I mean. Exactly. They, yeah. they did it, you know, the, according to the story, they went to the Senate, you know, which I think didn't yet exist, and said, could we, you know, it's, it's our land just in that area and we'll, do, we'll take on the battle for you, you guys, you know, you give us authorization. So they do, they go off. And then in a moment of madness, they all get massacred. Um, except for one except for one yeah. <laughs> you know they they uh, follow a, um an enemy group and, and think they're winning and then they're, they're surrounded and, yeah so it's um ghastly story and the, the, all the fabia wiped out with one exception I mean, apparently this fabian clan only had one child I mean, it doesn't make <laughs> sense of course and this one fabius then um, became the ancestor of uh, the later Fabian clan. But they had this memory of a private war, essentially, when the clan alone, with its own followers uh, of, of retainers, conducted a war against B. Okay, which is obviously another example where a clan group, maybe. So this is a really fascinating portrait we're developing of what Rome was like in this early period. And so maybe yep. expanding beyond the aristocratic families for a moment, what does the evidence tell us about what Roman society would have been like more generally during this early period? Well, it's um, it's, it's uh, again <laughs> a complete mystery. But uh, <laughs> one one of the documents we have, one of the most important documents of all, is the Twelve Tables of mm. Roman Law, which um, don't survive. Supposedly produced in around 450 by BC by the ten men who were drafted to draw them up. And anyway, the document, the 12 tables of Roman law, did survive until later times, and Cicero learnt them by heart and could quote them. So we have very substantial quotations, both in, in antiquarian, historical and legal sources that quote, you know, this is sources of the Roman imperial period, uh, writing about legal cases and so on. And they would often quote the 12 tables, say, you know, et cetera. And these 12 tables, the fragments of them, um, are very interesting about society and they make it clear that it's a largely agrarian society with much of the private law concerned with property, with uh, crops, with and, and the criminal law uh, referring particularly to theft of crops and invasion of property and damage and that sort of thing. Slavery exists but probably not yet as a major economic use of um, form of labor organization but sl private slavery you know individual servants in the great households definitely exist and the law reflects that with uh, statements about what happens if a slave commits an offense you know is the owner responsible or is it the slave and how how, how does punishment get exercised that sort of thing and so we get a picture of a society that is organized in certain way i mean the very fact that they have organized the law so that people can bring cases against one another and so on and settle disputes by legal means is a very interesting sign of a society of some sophistication, let's face it. Very, very little public law mentioned, nothing about the constitution, for instance, or, you know, uh, more's the pity, but it's clearly about private law, but a, an agrarian society of some sophistication, let's put it that way. Patricians and plebeians, um, are mentioned in law. So this division of the society um, is, is there. Um, the plebeians, what do we know about them? Well, they do seem to be not so much just everybody else who are not patricians, but they do actually organize themselves into a particular uh, group that you join the plebs, as it were, and, and form 
part of this very interesting group that tries to set up its own alternative state in pursuit of, of their rights, and above all by electing their own magistrates, possibly in uh, direct contrast to the state magistrates, consuls or whatever they are, um, they elect tribunes of the plebs who have the right to protect plebeians against injustice. You know, And uh, this organization is really interesting and fundamental for the future development of the state because the recognition of the tribunes and the right of the plebeians to meet and then to pass resolutions that eventually become law. Um, so that the plebeian institutions eventually become popular assemblies you know, of the whole Roman people. But it begins in the fifth century and is still, it's definitely there at the time of the Twelve Tables. So, um, you know, patricians, whoever they are, that control the state, uh, there are other people who are not patricians who are possibly able even to reach the consulship, if fasti are reliable. Who are they? Well, possibly well-placed followers of, of the patrician clans, the way that they eventually, you know, there is resentment in the end that the patricians have a monopoly and that um, other people want to get in on the act. And the way they do that, this is interesting, is they join the plebs and become tribunes and so on and use the plebeian organization as a way to fight their way into the uh, to the structures of the state. So th this becomes a struggle to get plebeians elected consul or elected to the chief magistracies. And that's the revolution of 366 when uh, 367, when the laws are finally passed and a plebeian for the first time becomes consul in 366. That's a major development. And from then on, um, they're not only eligible, but then they develop a power sharing system where one of the consuls must be a plebeian. Okay. And then eventually, not until 172 BC, is it possible for two plebeians to hold the consulship? So one of them is always a patrician, uh, right down to 172, which is and quite frequently thereafter. But uh, from 172 onwards, it's open and any, any two aristocrats can hold the consulship. I think this leads us really nicely to our final question for you, actually, which is about this conflict of the orders. So it goes on for so long in our written sources, and we seem to almost have practically no idea about what's really happening here because we're not sure how to define plebeians as a category. Yeah. We're not sure how to define patricians as a category. And there's a sense in which that maybe those terms are also being retrojected as well in terms of how they meant to the authors writing about them many centuries yeah. later. And exactly. yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts on what's going yeah, on Yeah, I know here. the conflict as it's presented uh, essentially in Livy is... Um, definitely a retrojection of um, the conflicts of the late Republic at the time of the Gracchi and beyond, where the tribunes of the plebs represent the ordinary people who are trying to get um, their rights established against the ruling senatorial oligarchy. And the patricians of the early Republic are assumed to be the Senate, you know, the senatorial order, the plebeians, everyone else. Now, in my view, that did not become the actual situation that there were patricians and everyone else plebeians until 367. The effect of the 367 um, reform was actually to establish that, and that everyone who was not a patrician was ipso facto a plebeian. Before that, I think there were plebeians, namely members of this organization that I've talked about, and patricians who are an exclusive hereditary group, and then there are lots of people in between. And the patricians could not possibly, let's think about this, um, there were a, at most a couple of hundred, maybe 300 clans, patrician clans in the early republic, represented at any one time by maybe three or four individuals, of adult male members of the clan who were around at, at any given time. Now, a, a group of that size, you know, let's say a maximum a couple of thousand people, at a time when Rome itself, the population was many tens of thousands, uh, could not possibly have dominated the rest of society in that way. The only way it could work is that there were uh, plenty of people who were neither agitating plebeians nor patricians. And people hangers-on of the patricians who supported the regime because it protected their property rights and so on. And the last thing they wanted was a social revolution. <clears throat> so, And the army, too. Um, that the patricians commanded an army of ordinary people, 
but they couldn't have done that if these ordinary people had been class enemies as it were <laughs> so and um, it it clear that uh, the situation was much more complicated the plebeian struggle was actually the movement of um, a relatively restricted group that is fighting uh, for their rights and the patricians were the small dominant group but they had the support of large numbers of, of non-patricians how I would read it anyway and the um, the issues that divide these two groups are of different kinds one was political representation and the effort to get plebeians into the consulship um, well that was only really a matter of interest to um, the leading plebeians uh, the well-to-do plebeians who wanted equality with their patrician neighbors and could to some extent represent their followers but that was the role really of the tribunes so that issue is is a, a political one and, and doesn't affect everyone the ordinary plebeians were uh, far more affected by debt uh, the debt crisis which rears its head a lot of times and uh, sometimes people could be enslaved for debt i mean the 12 tables make this clear so uh, debt enslavement or debt bondage as it's known was a major grievance of the plebeians and was part of the reform of 367 was to reduce the possibility of debt bondage and land distribution land ownership um, the, the 367 law made it illegal for anybody to own more than 500 yugara area of land possibly uh, as private property but more probably to my way of thinking uh, 500 yugara of so-called public land they could have as much private land as they wanted but the so-called public land um, they were restricted in the amount of that, that they could get their hands on in order to make the rest available for uh, use by the plebeians either as common land or indeed for distribution in allotments and every time the romans conquered anybody they took some of the land and made it public land and uh, the plebeians wanted it to be distributed to them as a reward for their efforts in the war the uh, patricians wanted it kept as aga publicus so called so they get their hands on it <laughs> and that, that was a major issue and again the 367 reforms have a, a, a land ownership element so those are the issues and they possibly don't all coincide if you see what i mean the people who wanted land reform didn't necessarily amount to the same people as wanted admission to the consulship you see what i mean absolutely well, thank you so much for providing us with such a comprehensible and yet comprehensive portrait of early Rome. We yeah. highly recommend that if you have enjoyed this conversation and you've been enjoying our journey through the early Republic, that you go and check out some of Professor Cornell's published works. They're highly readable and yet yeah. so detailed. You will get a really, really good picture of what's going on. And of course, check out the fragments of the Roman historians. So Professor <laughs> Cornell, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you. No, I've really enjoyed it. I'm sorry to ramble on so much, but I, I enjoyed it. Not at all. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this special episode of The Partial Historians with Emeritus Professor at the University of Manchester, Tim Cornell. This was made possible by the support of our Patreons. If you enjoyed listening to it, please consider becoming a Patreon yourself. But if this isn't possible, then please rate, subscribe, and review. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome. <laughs>